It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Message, Josh? None that I am conscious of. Except, of course, happy podcast. Surely the best of times. And with that, we are thrilled to welcome you into another episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. Thank you so much for your continued support. We truly appreciate it more than you know. We hope everyone is continuing to stay safe and healthy out there. I'm Dan Freemuth, your admiral for this particular mission. That is, until I disobey a direct order from a superior officer, coordinate and execute the theft of company property, and suffer the intense punishment of being reduced in rank to do that which I just wanted to do in the first place. Making up the rest of our crew compliment, you've already heard from him, Captain Josh Freemuth. Josh, how you doing? I had a wee bout, sir, but uh, Dr. McCoy pulled me through. Also pleased to be joined by, not Dr. McCoy, but our medical officer on this journey, Jordan Freemuth. Jordan, how goes it? It goes well. And, you know, Dan, I just wanted to say, I know, like, in terms of your background, in terms of your professional background, moderating, I know that you are sort of apt to do it, but I just ask, don't bury yourself in the part. (laughs) I will do the best that I can. Last but certainly not least, keeping us all afloat and running throughout this mission, Chief Engineer Gabe Freemuth. I'd be grateful, Admiral, if you'd give the word. Gentlemen, may the wind be at our backs. Stations, please. Just some quick housekeeping before we depart Space Dock. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you enjoy your podcast. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please also follow and connect with us on Instagram. We're there at dorkfest underscore podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Now, without any further ado, time to get to our mission briefing. So in recent weeks, we've spread our dorky wings to cover topics like Batman, Jaws, music, and James Bond. Well, this time around, we've set a course for our dorky sweet spot. We're going where at least the four of us dorks have gone many, many, many times before. We're going to navigate the Mutara Nebula, take a field trip to Genesis before it explodes, and slingshot around the sun to hopefully pick up enough speed we're in time warp. That's right, we're going to be examining the beloved Star Trek trilogy, that is, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Now, a slight adjustment to this trek through the stars. Don't worry, we'll still be implementing our one, two, and three-point question format. But within some of those, we're going to include some rapid-fire questions so that we can hopefully cover as much of the awesomeness that these three films have to offer. Now, just like Spock hanging around the bushes while Kirk and Jillian eat, it's our way to begin these podcasts with a warm-up question. So, gentlemen... Your warm-up question for this particular podcast, which is your favorite Starfleet-issued uniform of all time? Jordan, we begin with you. So I've always been partial to a lot of the uniforms used in the original movies. And as I was re-watching The Wrath of Khan for this particular podcast, I was especially struck by one that I'm going to select, which is the away team mission that Savick, Bones and Kirk 
use when they are beaming onto regular one. Specifically, I want to point out how Kirk wears his. He's got the collar popped when he's initially on there, but then once he, you know, witnesses the, the, the horror and tragedy, he, you know, professionally and appropriately so unpops his collar. So that's going to be my selection. Quick follow-up there, Jordy. Does that include those tremendous winter coats, that, that part of the uniform? Oh, yeah, primarily. I mean, the winter coats, they're really the best part. Yeah, absolutely. Good call there, uh, Jordan. Way to lead us off with that warm-up question. Gabe, we go next to you. I want to piggyback off uh, Jordan's point. Um, I just want to go one layer deeper and say the classic Star Trek original series uniform, excluding the first movie, that is the best uniform Star Trek has come up with. It's, uh, I've used this phrase a couple times on this podcast, but it is, again, a design classic. It's got the light flares at the boots. It's got that, uh, the sort of V opening. Um, so you can wear it a couple different ways, you know, if you want to be uh, at ease as opposed to at attention. Um, you've got the, the colors sort of very subtly indicating rank and, and the, uh, you know, you notice a, a gold stripe along Kirk's seam, you know, for indicating command and stuff like that. It's the little details that make this suit. It's a great choice of red. Uh, and maybe I'm biased because it's sort of the professional, you know, the grown-up movie suit that I came up with. Uh, I am partial to a, couple, a number of the movie suits, one particular in the next generation too, but I'll leave that going and say, yeah, for me, it's the original suit the original uniform that starts here in the Wrath of God. Boy, a lot of love for Star Trek II right out of the chute. No surprise there, uh, leading up to what we're going to dive into here shortly. For me, I'm going to actually steer away from the movies, and I'm going to say the next generation uniforms. And I'm not thinking so much the, the really tightly fitting ones from seasons one and two. I'm thinking more seasons three, four, and five when they loosen things up a little bit. You know, everybody gets a little... Uh, you know, Riker's a little heftier at that time, so he needs to be able to, you know, drop the uniform down a little bit, so give him some wiggle room there, but just really sharp colors with those golds and reds, the nice teal for the medical side of things, you know, the, the black top along the shoulder, clearly now a two-piece uniform, the whole jumpsuit idea, we need to not, we need to get away from that as much as possible, so for me, it's, it's always been the next generation uniforms. Josh, where do you go for your favorite Starfleet-issued uniform of all time? So I got to admit that I was going to choose Gabe's from Star Trek II, mostly because uh, I, I, I am a gentleman of some proportions, and uh, th those uniforms appear to be the most forgiving <laughs> in my eyes. However, uh, if, if I have to pick a different one, I'm going to go to one of the newer movies, Star Trek Beyond. Kirk has a really great looking blue jacket with these gold yellow stripes going up the shoulders, kind of making it look like a, like a Michigan Wolverine helmet almost. You know, in in ch checking out some of the backup options because you gotta you gotta give yourself options on these warm up questions. That jacket stood out, so that would be the one that I would pick. I don't know who had away team jackets in the pool, but they're they're winning right now. They're coming up gold and That's red and blue and all the all the different insignia colors. I see what you did there. Yeah, Jordan. Jordan picking a jacket that that was that was the odds-on favorite, but um, the bookmakers may have may have lost some money on on me selecting a jacket. I mean, you can always feel free to agree with me, but that is indeed a great jacket. 
I just, you know, did a quick Google of, you know, just to refresh my memory. And I was like, wow, like that is a really, really cool jacket he's got. And I always remember liking that movie. I'm not sure that I've seen it since, since I saw it in theaters, but you know, Chris Pine as Kirk looks darn cool in that thing. That he does. We could complete side note, but we probably could also host an entire podcast about Chris Pine riding motorcycles in movies. That seems to be the other common denominator with Chris. Love the guy. I think he's great. They always put him on a motorcycle, and I'm curious which came first. Very chicken and egg scenario. I do think Beyond, incidentally, holds up pretty well. Uh, extremely well. And interesting about the motorcycle point, I remember seeing that in one of the first main trailers that they released, and I thought, oh my God, where are we going with this? But it somehow works, and that movie, for me, is the best of the Kelvin timeline. It's the best of that crew in that in that trilogy. I know there's talks that they might you know, go down that road with that crew again. But that's, that's my favorite among those three. I think that's right. The first one retains a lot of charms, but a few things about it remain nearly irredeemably stupid. And Beyond fixes most of those, I think. And Into Darkness should just remain in darkness. Well, it's interesting that our warm-up question ends with the notion of Star Trek Into Darkness, because that does albeit strangely and a bit circuitously, dovetail very nicely into the heart of our podcast. Of course, Star Trek Into Darkness, effectively the reboot of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, as we all know, Star Trek on TV for three years with the original series, then the animated series, and only hit the big screen in 1979 with Star Trek The Motion Picture. And this, almost a direct response to the success of Star Wars in Hollywood and on the big screen. Now, we are not going to be talking The Motion Picture on this particular podcast, because for all intents and purposes, for us as Trekkies, it was a colossal disappointment. It had some interesting visual components to it. It was great to see these characters up on the big screen, but the movie is altogether pretty forgettable. But in 1982, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was released, and this got Star Trek on the big screen and in a big way and kicked off this extremely memorable trilogy that we're going to be talking about on this particular podcast. Now, there's an awful lot to unpack as it relates to these three films. And so with that, let's get to our one-point question. Our one-point question is actually going to be three different questions as part of our aforementioned lightning round. So we're going to begin with this, and Gabe, we're going to begin with you. We're talking exclusively Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 the rest of the way. And when looking at those three movies, Gabe, what is the best musical moment of the trilogy? Uh, as always, so many to pick from here. Uh, and so as not to interfere with my other dorks picks, I'm just, I'm going to just cut right to the heart of what I want here. I am going to go with uh, the battle for the Mukhtari Nebula track that starts specifically, uh, at least for me, in the regular asteroid inside the Genesis cave, right as Spock calls Kirk. Uh, and you've got this little quiet startup. And it's that at that point you go, oh, of course, he's got a plan. And he's got the apple and he doesn't like to lose, and it's just so Kirk, and you can't help but love it. You know, of course he's got something in, you know, up the sleeve in the back pocket for this. And the way that song builds, um, all these tremendous orchestral and brassy highs and the just wild whirling horns when it comes to Khan, just sort of, you know, duking it out over this submarine battle in space. It's just a, James Horner gets to go all out. You know, he's 
probably best known for his work on Titanic, maybe, you know, another James Cameron movie or something, but in my head, this is always what James Warner gets compared to. And I think this is a masterwork of a score and every, ever more so every time I watch the movie, it really does enhance it. And I think it culminates with that, with that track, the Battle of the Utah Nebula. And interesting, interestingly too, James Warner was in part selected for that movie because he was a cheaper option than some of the, than some of the other options that they were looking into. And as our moderator had mentioned already with the colossal failure that was the motion picture, they needed to save some money here. Now, and Gabe, I also want to say that is an epic apple bite uh, that you referenced too. Um, (laughs) But for me, I'm going to focus in on sort of the the musical element of it as that is what specifically the question asks. And, you know, if, if I was including the... The, the visuals that go along with the scene, I might choose something else, but I'm going to go with a track from Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, specifically the hospital chase. This is a tune that I specifically remember Dan, Josh, and potentially sometimes Gabe, us running around the house while that was going on, whether it was the recorded version that we were listening to on the soundtrack or while we were watching the actual film. Um, and it's a nice continuation of Chekhov's Run, which is a track that that comes up a little bit before that, but it's just a really, really upbeat, really, really fun track, and I think is very emblematic of just the upbeat nature of that entire film. So I'm going off the soundtrack, guys, because I'm going with Scotty playing Amazing Grace on the bagpipes. That part of that movie, when that song strikes up, I just burst into tears every single time. It does not matter how many times I've seen Star Trek II, which is beyond count at this point. And um, I, I, I cannot contain my, my emotions. It, Kirk's eulogy and, and then that song and then uh, flourishing into the full orchestral version once they uh, shoot the, the torpedo to tube out the torpedo bay uh, is, is an excellent flourish as well. So I'm going with Amazing Grace. That is an awfully tough act to follow. And uh, that, that's a mic drop moment only about eight minutes into this particular podcast. That's, that's the beauty of these endeavors with you particular guys, because it seems like every time we do this, there's stuff that I didn't even consider you guys bring up and I think, oh my God, yep, that that is supposed to be the answer that I should have given. So obviously that's what we all should have said. We didn't until Josh laid the hammer down. So now I will pick up the scraps. And we'll I also go- left it off our show notes. Very, very, <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of shifty maneuver yeah. is normally left for the likes of Gabe, but yeah. you may right. be you may be the new shifty one. Just to put a bow on our musical moments, uh, I will give my choice. Josh's response there makes me want to stand up and cheer. And that's what the track that I'm going to mention makes me want to do. And it's Home Again, the end credits from Star Trek Four. There's, of course, the reveal of the Enterprise A. The band is all back together. It's the culmination of these three films, this, you know, roller coaster of emotions that we've been going on. And the new refit Enterprise A warps into warp speed. And we get this 
tremendous score from Leonard Rosamond, who I don't know anything else that he did, but he really pulls out all the stops for this particular number. It blares into the end credits. And every single time they, they get to that part where it warps, you know, into warp speed, you just kind of want to pump your fist. You just want to stand up and cheer. We all know what it sounds like. And I think it's just a perfect end to that particular movie, but a perfect end really to this trilogy as a whole. Boy, that's a way to follow a mic drop. That's a, an excellent choice. Well, it's nowhere near as impressive as Josh's answer, but the good news for the rest of us is that with the lightning round format for this particular question, Josh may be in the lead, but he has not secured the one point yet because we still have two more questions to get to in our lightning round one-pointer. And Josh, now you're going to have to set the bar right out of the chute because we're coming to you first. This is our, what we'll call the Colorful Metaphor Award. I would like everybody, what is the best quote from this trilogy, Star Trek's two, three, and four? So there are plenty of like one-liners and zingers that, that I feel like I could choose and, and that I really enjoy. But, I'm, but again, I'm going to go with something a little more heartfelt. And it's a line that gets repurposed a couple of different times, gets said a couple of different ways. But I think the prevailing vocabulary is, I have been and always shall be your friend. When it comes down to it, these movies are about friendship between all of these crewmates, what they are willing to sacrifice for each other. And um, this line encapsulates why they feel that way. Um, and so it's, it, it's, my, it's my choice for favorite quote. For me, there are a lot of different humorous options that I would like to go with, but I'm actually going to veer away from that, and I'm going to choose a quote between uh, Kirk and Bones in Star Trek III, uh, Search for Spock, and specifically it's as they're looking up at the, the Enterprise, you know, burning up after being self-destructed, burning up in the atmosphere, and Kirk says to Bones, my God, Bones, what have I done? And McCoy says, what you had to do, what you always do, turn death into a fighting chance to live. And I like that for two specific reasons. Um, one, I think it's just emblematic of what Kirk so often does in all of these films and in so many of the episodes as well. But it also really is, it's, it's, it's basically the thesis for these three films and specifically for what he's trying to do with with spa you know it, it's very much he's he's turning death into a fighting chance not only for humanity to live but also specifically for Spock to live i'm gonna get entangled a bit with uh, josh's answer because my reasoning was remarkably similar to his but i went with another line entirely i went with the sort of heads tails version inversion of the good of the one uh, outweighs the good of the many and the good of the many outweighing the good of the few or the one. Again, speaking to that notion of, of friendship and, and sacrifice, which is what builds this entire two, three, four trilogy. Spock weighs his life against everything, you know, everybody else on that ship, the trainees, his students in a lot of cases and decides, okay, you know, that's, I can do this. And then everybody else, Kirk at the helm decides, yeah, no, this time also, we're not going to be complete without Spock. And, you know, incidentally, it helps, too, because another one of our friends is suffering because of this. So we need to go take care of this. But, yeah, I think that line, um, when it comes to this trilogy, uh, does, again, encapsulate the entire question. 
three great selections by all you guys, and I think all really echo the sentiments of what these movies are all about, and that is friendships and relationships and putting those friendships and relationships above everything else. And that's going to kind of echo my selection as well. Interesting about the quote that I picked, it's not spoken by any major character. It's uttered by the terribly annoying and totally forgettable Excelsior Captain Styles when he says, Kirk, you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. As Jim Kirk plops down in the captain's chair again. But basically, this is a moment where Kirk is literally making the conscious decision to flush his career straight down the tubes for his friend. Nothing else matters except his friendship with Spock and the notion, just the chance that he could bring his friend back to life. I think that says everything that it needs to say about these friendships and these relationships. I think it's so great that we all kind of went down the same road. I think it's what makes these movies, this trilogy in particular, so special and so meaningful. And so I guess it should be no surprise that we all picked corresponding quotes. Yeah, boy, it's, it's getting heavy in here, Doc. Well, you're, well, Josh, and that's your fault because you brought up Scotty on the bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. So if anybody is to blame for this, it's you. I'm sure we could all do a quick lightning round of our favorite comedic one-liners if we needed to, you know, just to levy it up, just to, you know, provide some levity here to the well, proceeding. I was going to mention a certain, um, a certain traffic line from Star Trek Four, but I have it on good authority that some of the younger members of our listening audience don't like... Uh, some of the suspect language that sometimes gets thrown on around here. The, the colorful metaphors, we, we want to steer clear of those. We haven't quite got the knack of it. Correct. <laughs> Correct. We, we're doing our best. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid people don't listen to podcasts unless you swear every other word. <laughs> All right. Well, that didn't take long to bring a little <laughs> levity to the podcast. So well done, everybody. We've still got one more lightning round question to get to very quickly. And this, I think, will help liven things up as well. Jordan, we're going to start with you. We love these movies, in case you couldn't tell already. We adore these movies to the moon and back, but they're not perfect. So, Jordan, starting with you, what are the worst parts or elements of these otherwise excellent films? Um, so I, I'm, I'm tempted to go in two different directions. Uh, one name comes to mind uh, of a character in Star Trek IV. The name is Bob. Um, however, I'm not going to go in that direction because I was, as I was re-watching it, I realized that he made a decision that then forced Jillian to reach out to Kirk. So if Bob had not done that thing, then, then, then many other dominoes might not have fallen. So instead, I'm going to go to Star Trek II the Wrath of Khan, and I am going to select the, the Seti eel scene. Um, now, this is a scene that I was re-watching. Um, I was re-watching it with, with my son the, the, this past week, and I fast-forwarded through it because I didn't want him to see it. Now, what the audience needs to know about my son is that my son is just over six weeks old, so he can't even see that far. So it's, it, this has nothing to do with him not actually wanting to see that or me not wanting him to see it. I just don't want to watch that scene. Still grosses me out, grosses me out as a kid, continues to gross me out as an adult. No, want no part of it. I think uh, director Nick Meyer thought that scene ended up maybe too cheesy, but I, I got to disagree. I think that scene is still really effective. Uh, just to mention there, that's a, a great choice. Jay. Totally agree. 
for uh, for me, I'm going to go to the next uh, movie, and it's I think just something that hasn't uh, stood the test of time as well as uh, some of the other pieces of this. I'm going to go with the fist fight between Kirk and Cruz at the end of three on Genesis. You know, I think it it's the it's the T.J. Hooker Doc Brown crossover nobody wanted, and it doesn't. I just don't think it holds up. You know, I mean, they mostly succeed say in the Next Generation movies, making Picard into an action hero. But to be fair, you know, Patrick Stewart pretty much looks the part. He's, uh, you know, he's climbing these ropes in engineering and he's, he's looking good. You believe it. You know, he's sort of Indiana Jonesing his way through. And as much as Kirk was a scrapper in his youth, uh, as much as they make about Kirk's age in the second one, it doesn't seem to bother him, you know, his back much, say, when he's leaping off a precipice ah, to, go get, to go get Christopher Lloyd down to the bottom there. And while I retain a soft spot in my heart for I have had enough of you, uh, I also think that, you know, Great stagecraft, though it is, the uh, the planet disintegrating also just does not quite hold up as much as the other effects over time there. So I'm going to say that uh, that's something that sort of mars the end of that movie a little bit. But then we get the return of Spock, so all is made well. I am appalled by that choice, Gabe. And I, oh, I, oh, I, oh. I will give you one, like, movie reason why I think your age critique of Kirk is off base his son had just died, it had been murdered by these Klingons. And so that, I think it's that rage that is, is propelling his, his effort there. I, as I said, I can't believe it. I, I, I'm, I'm going to get off my uh, somber tone and make fun of Captain Styles' toupee, which uh, is, is blatantly obvious and it seems that they have him like turn and the camera zoom in just in time as the Excelsior is stalling to a halt uh, just to really accentuate what a dope this guy is. Uh, but that uh, piece is ridiculous. That's a great I also wonder like, what's that like rod that he's carrying around? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think with it, that Captain Styles character, you could go in a few different directions because, yes, there's the bad toupee. He's got that baton or cane, whatever. I, yeah, we don't ever know what that is. He's filing his nails in his quarters when they contact him. And maybe what is most deplorable to me is we're about to go to transwarp, execute. What is that supposed to be like? His Picard engaged? Like, sorry, bro, it's just not working for you. This is the guy that practices his catchphrase in the mirror. Execute. Yeah, that's that's right. Should it wait? Should it be go? Just go? No, no, I don't. I don't like that. I don't like that. What about what about like go ahead? Oh, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll come back to that. All excellent points from you, gents. Uh, no surprises there, to be sure. I'm going to add. Um, just one more unique thought to this worst parts conversation. And I'm not necessarily going to go to a specific movie moment, but more a storytelling component. And it's always bothered me in Star Trek II, the con checkoff continuity error that exists there. And it's right. Khan delivers that line when he sees Pavel checkoff. I never forget a face except for any of us who have, you know, watched more than five minutes of Star Trek, we know that the Chekhov character was not in the first, uh, the original series, season one episode of Spacey. Now, there's supposedly fan theories out there that Chekhov was a member of the Enterprise. He just wasn't introduced to us as a viewing audience until season two. That's a bunch of baloney. It's just lazy storytelling because the rumor is that... 
word of Spock's death had leaked out before the movie came out. And so this was some kind of story changing retribution. It just doesn't work. And it's, it's kind of comes across as lazy and sloppy. So that's something that I've never particularly enjoyed. They work around it. The movie is still great. But if we're, if we're nitpicking here, and that's what we're doing in this final question in our lightning round, we are nitpicking. That would be a nitpick for me. One especially amusing theory that I did come across, though, was that they, they claimed that uh, Khan saw Chekhov on his way to the bathroom, and that is why um, he, he, uh, he remembered him. So, I mean, at least there's a little bit of amusement there. Yeah, I think that's the story Walter Koenig tells because he doesn't like telling the story where like he was being punished for leaking story information and that's why he got shifted into that that role well whatever it was it makes for a sloppy bit of storytelling but again just a, a nitpick within three tremendously tremendous movies great work gentlemen with our lightning round some tremendous points all uh gabe if we were just doing the last question for the point, you would get it for the TJ Hooker, Doc Brown crossover that no one wanted. Uh, that was a tremendous point there. Jordan, if we were just basing it off our favorite quote from the trilogy, I would have given it to you with the, my God bones, what have I done? Turn death into a fighting chance to live. You would have gotten the point there, but I'm sorry, gents. Just can't overlook Josh's choice for the initial lightning round question. Scotty on the bagpipes, that emotional moment. And then Josh also brought some good thoughts to the other questions as well. So our one point lightning round question goes to Josh. Well done there, Captain. Can I cook or can't I? Well played, sir. So our lightning round for the one pointer, obviously it should now be apparent that we are somewhat familiar with these three particular films. We've seen them maybe a time or two. But for our two-point question now, we're still going to adopt the idea of multiple questions within a question. But this is going to be more of a deep dive now. We're actually going to have three different questions that we analyze, and everybody's going to get to convey some different thoughts throughout them. We are going to begin with you, Gabe, though, for our first of these two-point questions. And this conversation is going to begin with what is the best scene of this particular trilogy? It's a difficult, uh, difficult question, sir. But um, I'm going to go back to the Wrath of Khan. And I'm going to provide some context here because it's going to be a little similar to what I called out for the musical moment. And I want to make sure that, you know, that you all know I did my homework and I'm not just going back to the one movie I watched before we did this. Three and four are, uh, are great movies. Three has what, you know, though it is probably the least of the three, arguably, and I'll, I'll debate that with anybody that wants to later. Um, it may contain, again, arguably, one of the best scenes in the entire trilogy. I won't name it here in case somebody else picks it. Um, four is a delight. That was the first movie I ever watched. But two, I think, needs some special recognition because it's effectively a reboot of the previous movie. They're trying everything over again. They're giving Star Trek one more chance. And by the time of making this movie, not by the time it comes out necessarily, but as they're making this film, they don't, they're thinking it's, it's the only one they're going to do. They're not thinking franchise yet. And for me, the best scene that keeps this series going through to all the way to six is the, the activation of the Genesis torpedo on the Reliant through to Kurt's realization that Spock is in engineering. That is a ballsy scene to, because, and, it's, and it, it deals wholly in suspense. It's not a gotcha. You know what's happening. 
It's happening in real time, sort of, sort of in slow motion in front of you. Genesis goes off. They recognize the signature. Ricardo Montalban gets to do some great schmacting. It's better than that. He does. He gives a tremendous performance here. And David tells everybody, and he's the expert on this. Yeah, you can't. We can't beam over there and deactivate it. This is going off whether we like it or not. So they start running. Spock makes his calculations like we talked about earlier, and he goes for it. And James Horner really elevates this scene. There's a, a quick shot of Spock descending a ladder and going into, you know, another porthole in the ground. And without music, it's just a shot of Leonard Nimoy descending a ladder and going into that. And then with the music, all of a sudden, it's this huge, dramatic, bombastic, you know, five seconds. Um, but ultimately, I think it is, it, this is something that Star Trek had never really done before. Th these are the highest stakes that Star Trek as a series had played with to date. Spock's going to die. And we know it, and we know it the second Kirk realizes that Spock's not on the bridge. Uh, and everything thereafter is rightfully famous. But I think that sequence of how in the heck is the Enterprise going to get out of this one? As much as they had really channeled the original series in, uh, I think, especially the first encounter with Khan, that is a true, I think, call. But that's when they really figure out that they're back there. This is something that took that and went beyond for the first time. I think it, it is a really well-crafted sequence. And Gabe, one of the things that I love about that scene, it sort of speaks to that moment that you're talking about in terms of, you know, how are they going to get out of this, is the moment when, I, b I believe it's Sulu that says, we're not going to make it, are we? Yeah. And Kirk turns to, to David, and David's just kind of like, just gives him a, 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 a quick shake, like, nope, nope, you're not. Um, and it really just sort of sets the, set, set, sets the mood there. Um, I am going to, though, be a bit of a stickler with a couple of things that you said, though, Gabe. Uh, first off, you began by saying that this was a difficult question. To me, this is not a difficult question. There is one scene. The best scene is stealing the Enterprise. Just hands down. There it is. It, it, I, th that's what it is. Um, and, and there are plenty of other great scenes throughout the rest of the films, too, as we'll no doubt discuss in this. But the stealing the Enterprise scene. The music with it is phenomenal. You have this wonderful mix of humor and suspense. You have some great one-liners in there. You have, you have Sulu telling the security guard, don't call me tiny. You have, um, you have Scotty telling the Excelsior computer to shove it. Um, you have Uhura and Mr. Adventure. You have an especially great line of bones saying to Kirk, are you just going to walk through to get through the space doors? Um, but I think what really makes this scene age so well, in addition to the music, is that they embrace the slowness of space. It builds a suspense. You know, th this is an escape scene. This is, this is a theft scene. And it and it's not fast, you know, when, as the Enterprise is leaving space dock, it's not doing so. It's not like they zoom out of there. It really embraces how slowly things move in space and, and ups the suspense. And as Dan already mentioned, that great line at the end where you know, the, the Excelsior captain says, you're never going to sit in the captain's chair again if you do this. And, and, and that's the moment when Kirk sits down. It, it's such a great ending to that scene. I mean, to me, it's just, it, there might not be a more perfect scene in all Star Trek. You did leave out one really choice one-liner, uh, which comes from Kirk when he's trying to spring Bones. How many fingers am I holding up? And then Bones, Bones is back. It's not, it's not the Spock inside Bones. We, we are very clear at that point that the sense of humor says that Dr. McCoy is back with us. But Jordy, that's certainly a scene that stands out for me. And I think a big reason why for me is that it's a total team effort. 
Like we've seen in Star Trek in the past where Kirk and Spock team up and, and by gosh, there's nothing that those two guys can't do when they put their minds to it. But in order to steal the Enterprise, which sounds like a pretty darn big initiative, we're going to need all hands on deck, literally. So you've got Scotty, who sabotages the Excelsior. You've got Chekhov, or excuse me, you've got Sulu, who takes out the security guard. You've got Uhura, who takes care of Mr. Adventure and beams you down, you know, to where you need to go. So it's a total team effort. And then you get to the end of this, well, the end of the sort of theft scene. And Kirk basically says, look, like you guys have done a hell of a job. I'm going to recommend you for whatever fleet we end up serving in, but your work here is done. And they all just kind of look at him and Chekhov is the one who says, you know, we're wasting precious time. Like we're all in this together. Yeah, Spock is your BFF, but he's our friend too. And we've come this far. So it's time to do this thing together as a group. I do want to also get back to Gabe's scene though, because Gabe, you took it to the finish line, but you didn't cross the finish line because the rest of that scene is what makes it so great. And that is of course, when we meet the inevitable end of Spock. And some nice little nuances I think there are really interesting. And this is the kind of nonsense that people listen to are like, oh my God, how many times have these goofballs seen this movie to pick up this kind of stuff? But here's Kirk calling to Spock. Spock's down on his knees, he's at the end of the bay, and he gets up, and what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he adjusts his uniform. And why does he do that? Because he's about to meet his captain. And when you're face-to-face -face with your superior officer, you need to adjust your uniform. And then what's the next thing that he does? Ship. Out of danger. It was always about the ship. It was always about the crew. It wasn't about Spock, the individual. It always was about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. And yes, maybe we've seen these movies too many times to go down these roads of minutiae. But some of these little details take what could be good scenes and turn them into great, memorable for life kind of scenes. I'm not crying. You're crying. Yeah, I mean, I, I've already uh, voiced how emotional that whole sequence makes me. Dan and I totally agree. I, I almost feel like, you know, that stealing the Enterprise and then the... Um, you know, Spock sacrifice kind of starting with Gabe's scene and ending with Dan's scene. Like those are these two magnificent and just epic sequences. Uh, for my pick, I'm going to go with something considerably more lighthearted and it's from four and it's when Scotty and McCoy are in Plexicorp. This is just such a fun scene. This is two guys who don't get to act together very often it seems uh james doing into forest kelly and th they're probably the two funniest actors and characters that they have in, in this crew and so this caper that they pull on this dr nichols is just really set up for for uh, for some fun and it delivers instantly uh, as jordan gagged earlier don't bury yourself in the part scotty is really going for it and it's you know it, it it's actually probably a really nice acting job by James Doohan because like he is acting as a guy acting, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's a technical term, which Gabe might be able to tell me for that. But um, you know, that, that's a, that's a 
terrific dynamic. And then the whole on the computer, I can't tell you how many times I pretended to be Scotty, just by typing really fast um, as, a, as a kid and maybe occasionally as an adult as well. McCoy and Scotty in, in, in Plex the Corp is not the best scene, but when you take out these uh, other big, heavy emotional scenes that you guys are talking about, this is definitely up there among my favorites. And I think that's in part what four is kind of all about, right? There's been a whole lot of emotional weight in two and three, and four was meant to do exactly, Josh, what you just outlined. And I think four still has a number of great scenes. In addition to that, I mean, I, I go to the end, right? We're back in we're back in the future now, but I mean, heck, you've got the bird of prey, the Klingon bird of prey flying under the Golden Gate Bridge to crash into the San Francisco Bay. Kirk's got to spring the whales, and we get this celebratory swim in the bay with humpback whales in the background. I mean, if that doesn't, you know, leave you feeling like, my goodness, over these three movies, we've really accomplished something, then I don't know what will. And my favorite part of that scene, too, is Kirk pulling Spock into the water, even as Leonard Nimoy is very clearly trying to resist being pulled into the water. And if you hang on through the end credits, you get to see Jimmy Doohan tank down the ladder and fall in, into the little, uh, the, you know, the, the water tank they got there. I do also quickly want to go back to Star Trek Three because I sort of piggybacked off of a few other scenes that others had mentioned, but haven't actually introduced one of my own, which I suppose is a classic me move. Um, I am going to go to Star Trek Three though, not for the stealing the Enterprise scene, but for the Enterprise self-destruction scene. Jordan already outlined the tremendous line that comes at the end of that, but that's already when you know the, the crew is down on the planet and they're looking up at the Enterprise, which is now destroyed. And yes, the Enterprise at that point had gone through a number of refits. You know, it's not the original Enterprise that we recall from 1966, Star Trek, the original series, but the bones of it, yes, that is that original ship, that ship we fell in love with in the late 60s. And then us growing up watching it, that's the one that's destroyed. And it's the absolute last resort for Kirk. I, there's some really um, intense acting and delivery that's done by Shatner, but also Jimmy Doohan and Walter Koenig when they have to when they have to deliver the self-destruct code. I think it's really neat that it takes the three of them to be able to pull this off. That one guy can't just unilaterally decide, "Hey, look, it's time to torpedo this thing." It takes all three of them, and they both kind of approach it differently. Chekhov is very apprehensive and he looks to Kirk for sort of, are you sure this is what we want to do? And Scotty just takes the bull by the horns and you can see him know like, yeah, this is what we have to do and, and it's time to do it. But then the way they escape, no tricks, Kirk. And yep, no tricks, except that we're going to do the simultaneous beam out and the Klingon landing party ends up and, you know, the, the poor officer, he's so clueless. He doesn't, you know, the computer is doing the, the only thing doing the talking and Krug knows what's up and it's too late for those guys. But a really, another really cool scene, another one of those sort of sacrificial, whatever it takes kind of scenes to get Spock back. But another component of Star Trek Three, which I have sort of always in my head thought is number three of this trilogy in terms of quality but more and more, I'm not sure. I, that movie is awfully good. 
that movie is pretty tight. And um, I do want to, uh, that excellent self-destruct sequence you talk about, Dan, uh, direct pull from uh, the original series from, I think, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield when they're trying to uh, bluff Beale and Loki. And uh, so that's twice Kirk and Scotty, at least, have tried to uh, blow up the Enterprise second time they succeeded. But again, I think that just speaks to the kind of attention to detail, what gets at the core of what Star Trek is that all three of these movies do. But three is notable because that's the first time that any Star Trek item is directed by one of the performers. Leonard Nimoy takes over the director's chair um, and does a, I was going to say more than able, but I mean, a hugely capable job in terms of handling. I mean, another scene we could talk about here is uh, the scene between Kirk and Sarek as Sarek arrives at Kirk's house demanding to, you know, what happened? You know, what about his country? You know, his body's there and they think it's separated and they go back. And that's just a, that's a really intimate scene and it's so nicely handled, you know, and again, James Horner does a, a great job bringing us in, I think emotionally to all this, but uh, yeah, Nimoy really lenses this whole film uh, really well. DeForest Kelly though tells a uh, fun story about how when Spock is, you know, lying comatose on the slab toward the end of the movie as they're bringing it back, DeForest Kelly sweared, uh, all his life that uh, Leonard Nimoy was trying to direct, direct him with his eyeballs closed, like the fluttering of his lashes and stuff like that, a little to the left, you know, that way. Um, yeah, for all the overacting that we know Bill Shatner is capable of, it's a real testament to that scene that, you know, he, as he's reliving Spock's death in that moment, it's, it's haunting and it's, it's sad all over again. It's tragic all over again for him. Uh, two other scenes that I just wanted to mention quickly from Star Trek Three, and Dan, I, I agree with you. I, I growing up, I always felt like Three was the third of, in, in terms of quality of these, and I'm not quite so sure about that anymore. Uh, but the two other scenes that I wanted to talk about really quickly: McCoy in the bar scene, the acting job that DeForest Kelly does of sort of melding um Spock and Bones into this humorous character is just really really nicely done uh, you also have that great line of you know how can you be deaf with ears like that you know going a little bit back just to the McCoy but then also the other one that I noticed in a rewatch this week was the the scene where the Enterprise returns to space dock and what I like about that is the juxtaposition that scene plays when you when you look at it next to the Enterprise clearing the moorings in Star Trek 2 and it sort of speaks to the emotional and physical toll that the Enterprise and its crew has gone through um, so those are two other scenes that I think really really hold up well in Star Trek 3. One part that I've always loved on that scene Jay is when the space dock communications officer is saying to you know is communicating and and says you know enjoy the ride and welcome home and all kirk says is enterprise confirms it's just like jordan says we know william shatner for overacting we know jim kirk for being this big bombastic flamboyant personality and he is just drained at this moment and this is all he's got left and he has no interest in any banter or small talk with uh with a communications officer just get me into this space dock so i can you know get off this ship and figure out what i'm gonna do next these movies are chock full of excellent work by all the principals really they do take the larger canvas offered by the, you know, by being a, a full-on movie instead of a TV show when they run with it. And, and I do think, um, yeah, for all the flack that Shatner catches, um, and, you know, rightfully so on occasion, he's got a few absolutely golden moments in this. I think all, everything mentioned so far, 
is absolutely correct. And I've always enjoyed one anecdote that um, the director of uh, Wrath of Khan, Nick Meyer, says about um, one particular moment in that first uh, Reliant fight, the, fir the first time the Reliant ambushes uh, the Enterprise. There's the, uh, the line when they're, the moment when they're supposed to send over the, the Genesis information and the Enterprise is actually going to send over those infamous uh, security codes to deactivate the Reliant shield. And apparently Shatner was giving take after take of just too cheeky, winking, knowing, you know, oh, here it comes. Get ready, con old boy. I don't know what it actually sounded like. I, we can only imagine. But eventually he just, Nick Meyer eventually just sort of exhausted him. And the take that comes out, um, Nick Meyer thought was maybe Shatner's best line reading of the movie. And while I think that's arguable, it's probably one of the better of his career. It is exactly that. It's the, it's almost like the first or the, I don't know, in this movie, the midway step of exactly what you say, Josh, that Kirk is really feeling the, his age in these, in this, this movie in particular. Um, you know, it's a major theme. And the contrast between him and Khan uh, and Ricardo Montalban's excellent performance as, you know, still this incredibly powerful, virile, you know, monolith of, of perfect engineering. Um, but Shatner's performance um, really does, I think, get, have a few moments in here that, are, that deserve mentioning. I would be remiss if I also didn't say something about Leonard Nimoy, because I think his arc, Spock's arc, what he does, his work with, um, with that, in an arc that sort of starts in this mini-arc, is tremendous. You know, we get to see all aspects of Spock, life and death. There's not many characters that can speak to that. And yeah, I think it's, uh, these three movies um, really represent a, a whole new grading curve for the performances. All right, Gabe, well, that actually helps us transition very nicely into our next question. Remember, we're kind of going lightning round-esque here in the two-pointer. We're letting everybody weigh in, but we're also kind of now doing our deep dive. So we've talked scenes, and we outlined a number of those tremendous scenes from the trilogy. And as Gabe kind of started the conversation, we're now going to shift into characters. And we're going to start with where Gabe just set us up on a tee for what we're hoping is a 350-yard drive right down the middle of the fairway. We're talking about actors. Josh, we're going to begin with you. Which actor brings the best performance to this Star Trek trilogy? So we were talking about Shatner, and I'll say it's Shatner. Uh, he, is, he is the hero of these movies. He's the star. He has to be great, and, and he is. Is he over the top a lot? Yes. But... I, I, as I sort of mentioned in my defense of his fight against Krug, I, I, I think it, it can be justified in the story. And I think it can be justified based on just on what we know about the character of Kirk. This is a larger than life hero. And I, so I think it's okay uh, if he overacts by, by really hamming it up when he's eating an apple or um, doing some pretty, shameless flirting with uh, with Dr. Jillian Taylor. It's not just that. As I said, there are these also great understated moments. The two that I will, two additional ones that I'll single out are again from Star Trek Three, when Kirk is meeting with Commander Starfleet and you get the zoom in on Shatner's face as the, the commander, as his commander is trying to tell him like, don't do this, what you're thinking of. Don't act irrationally. You know, you'll ruin your career and you just zoom, you're zooming in on Shatner the entire time and you see on his face that you know exactly what he's going to do. And then he switches back into ham mode to head fake his superior officer that like, oh yeah, you're right. I just had to try. Um, and so I think that 
switch is especially really cool. And then another one of those sort of deadpan one-liners that I really like when they're stealing the Enterprise and Chekhov is relaying the communications. Um, you know, Commander Starfleet orders you to stand down this vessel and Kirk just says, no reply, Chekhov. You know, it, it doesn't do me any good to get into a war of words with, with anybody. I'm not trying to fool anybody. Everybody knows what I'm trying to do and I know that I can do it. And, I, you know, I, I don't need to talk to you, so just get out of my way. I, I, I've, I've always... I've always loved to love that line. I'm sure that you can single out isolated moments where Shatner is ridiculous, but that's part of why we love him. I think Shatner does a great job in these three movies. I mean, I think you're right. He is, he is the captain. He is the star. It's certainly a, it certainly has to be one of, if not the first names that you think of. But I, I think the performance of DeForest Kelly is a supremely underrated one in these three films in particular. And I think the point was already made earlier, and I'm going to piggyback off of it. In Star Trek III, DeForest Kelly effectively has to play the blend of McCoy and Spock. And the reason that we always enjoyed the dynamic that these two characters had was because they're such polar opposites. Bones is the emotional human, Spock is the illogical Vulcan, and now all of a sudden they're blended into one person. And DeForest Kelly does a tremendous job of delivering those moments where we know exactly which character has kind of stepped to the forefront. And then, of course, Jordan already mentioned the scene in the, the cantina of sorts. It's not necessarily the 1977 cantina, but he is trying to charter a space flight. And there's so many great lines in there. And, and he just delivers a, a spot-on performance. And if you're looking for one-liners, nobody delivers a one-liner better than Bones. So I'm, I'm going to stick up for DeForest Kelly as delivering the best acting performance in this particular trilogy. I, I mean, we've got two of the three of the uh, Triple Crown for Star Trek. So I think I am going to go ahead and, and round that one out. Because, yeah, Shatner, I got ahead of myself and spoke a bit to that. And yeah, that's uh, absolutely true. I think he turns in excellent work. And DeForest Kelly uh, is an absolute delight in these two movies. But I'm going to continue with my Nimoy pitch because I'm going to say that um, we get to watch Leonard Nimoy craft the character, not just you know through the, the excellent creation of Spock in the TV show, but specifically through these three movies. We go through that transition of life, death, and life again, as McCoy terms it. And boy, I, I gotta say again, what a unique aspect, because not only does that character get to continue and have a complete old, whole second life that we get to see glimpses of as Star Trek goes on, he you know, works with a whole other generation of, as it were, of Star Trek crew. He transcends universes and goes into a whole other one to meet another him and sort of get their, their universe out. And it starts here in these three movies. And I think the best performance goes to Leonard Nimoy for giving us the, the perfect post-series Spock in Wrath of Khan for, you know, being uh, really good at not being there and then being mostly comatose until the last five minutes of uh, Search for Spock. But of course, the Your Name is Jim recognition is, uh, I think someone said it in our notes, that is the payoff of the entire movie that that recognition occurs. And then in four, he's just, it's wall-to-wall -wall wonder as he walks the streets of San Francisco wondering if there's something wrong with the one he has when Julian asks if he should change his mind. 
you know, just all sorts of fun, yeah, colorful metaphors as, as Spock relearns. And the Spock that emerges is different, but it starts here. And I think it goes to Leonard Nimoy. And the degree of difficulty goes up considering he was directing three and four as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as good as an able, as I said, three is four is him it, absolutely in his groove. Four was, uh, I think for a long time, the highest grossing of these Star Trek films until um, maybe the aughts. Um, but it's probable that it, first contact outdid it. Anyway, trivia. Yeah, I mean, as Dan mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts, there's a reason that these three are are the the holy trinity of Star Trek. I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback with with Josh um, and say that I think Shatner gets the the overall best performance. Um, you know, I think there's a pretty high degree of difficulty in terms of what Shatner has to do in delivering this performance for Kirk. You know, you have a Kirk at the beginning of Star Trek II who is, who is old, who is feeling old. Um, and Star Trek II is very much a journey of him going through and, and finding his youth again or finding his agency again. You know, the, there's, there's a very clear shift when he has to take over command of the Enterprise, and, and it's almost as if he's regaining something from himself. But then there's also all of this mourning that has to go on because of that, the, the cost of him regaining his youth in a, in a sense. Um, you know, you obviously have the mournful scene that, that Josh has already talked about that, that, is, that is upsetting for all of us to watch at the end of Star Trek II. But then a, a scene that stuck out to me, too, from Star Trek III is when he's down on the Genesis planet and he sees that David's dead and he walks over to him all alone and covers him up. And there's no line or anything. There's nothing that he says, but it's this moment of having to mourn someone close to him all over again um so I, I do think i do think that there's a pretty high degree of difficulty in terms of what shatner did and as we already mentioned several times you know for an actor who's known for overacting i can't i, I won't say i can't but i i don't think of the moments that he overacted in these three films i think of the pr overall performance that he provided he is impressively restrained in these movies he does a good job we also need to, I think Gabe mentioned earlier, um, but just to quickly bring it back again, Ricardo Montalban is tremendous. We talked about him in the Villains podcast. I, th I think my favorite con moment is his initial reveal where he is taking off his like jacket and then the the like bottom part of the mask and then the helmet that he's wearing. And the, the music there is really eerie to another great job by James Horner uh, you know and and that's a that's an, another like simple perhaps understated moment by of acting by Ricardo Montalban and then he dials it up to 11 as we've said before you know with some of his uh, you know Moby Dick extemporizing um, uh, later but uh, you know Ricardo Montalban does a great job as well. And I've actually always liked how the how they took Khan or how he took Khan in a more emotional direction with this, as opposed to the Khan that we see in the original series. Yeah, he's a guy at this point with nothing left to lose. He's gotten off the planet. He knows where his quarry is. He's going to go after it. He'll figure the rest out later. But yeah, no, he's he's got a clear drive here, and Montalban plays it for all it's worth. I mean, he owns the screen from that initial. I agree with you, Josh. That first reveal is a fantastic scene. It's about 18 minutes into the movie. And I mean, from there on out, it's, uh, I mean, there's a reason that this became such like an iconic moment for Star Wars, 
an iconic moment for Star Trek in general because he's instantly iconic. All right. So obviously then the next place we have to go because the convergence of great characters with great actors and great performances leads to great and memorable moments within movies. So that's where we're going to go next for the final of our lightning round questions within this two-point question. And Jordan, we are going to start with you. So which character had the best moment in this Star Trek trilogy? For me, specifically because we're talking about best moment, um, this one's pretty easy. It's, it's a moment I've played over in my head millions of times since I initially saw it. Um, and it's McCoy. It's McCoy in Star Trek II um, as they are learning about Genesis um, and his just shock and bewilderment and just the great line of, now watch out, here comes Genesis. We'll do it for you in six minutes. It, it, what's great about it is, is that it's, you know, it's vintage McCoy in that he is sort of this, you know, he's, he's a little curmudgeonly, um, but he's also spot on. I mean, he's spot on in terms of the, the weight of this decision, the weight of, of what's going on here, and also just the, you know, the interplay between McCoy and Spock in that moment is so wonderful. So for me, best moment, McCoy, Star Trek II. I'm going to go with a character we haven't talked much about, and that's, uh, I'm going to go again to, to Star Trek Three and uh, Lieutenant uh, Uhura, Nichelle Nichols, specifically the, Mr. Adventure uh, scene. She, you know, unfortunately doesn't always get a whole heck of a lot to do in the episodes and in the movies, but, you know, there are a select few examples. I'm specifically thinking of, of Mirror Mirror when she has to go toe-to-toe with, with Sulu, and you can really see how formidable a Starfleet officer Uhura is and an actress, Nichelle Nichols, is and in Star Trek Three, the way she handles so easily this this pathetic uh, lieutenant um, in the transporter room, who is whether knowingly or or not, you know, calling calling Uhura, you know, old and washed up, and then she immediately turns it right back around on him. That like, yeah, I'm not intimidated by Captain Kirk. And, or Admiral Kirk at this point, and I'm, I'm gonna do you know follow his orders you know to heck with Starfleet regulations about encoded IDs and destination orders, and moreover you're gonna sit in the closet. And when you know Kirk asks you, you know can you handle that you know it, it's you know she she has a great line reading of I'll have Mr. Adventure eating out of my hand like not only is this not a problem but I'm going to turn him into someone who can help me do what I got to do uh, I think that moment for Uhura is is a tremendous character moment in these three movies I've uh, sung entire Klingon opera's worth of praises uh, for most of the main cast of these movies. So for me, I'm going to go to something we spoke of not long ago, uh, and I'm going to give it to the guest star. Uh, I think the character that gets the best moment in these might be, uh, as mentioned, the reveal of Khan in Star Trek II. Um, it, uh, It kicks things off with such stakes. I mean, for if you were sitting there in the theater, I imagine, as a fan, and you saw, I mean, as promised, the movie's called The Wrath of Khan. It can't be a surprise when he shows up. But there he is, and you immediately know, boy, this guy's a threat. And even the, you know, canon or not, 
the look of sheer alarm and panic on Chekhov's face when he realizes where they are and what this must mean. And they're just with such malice and relish in the moment. And he just, I said earlier, he owns the moment and he does. When Khan is speaking, everyone is listening and he knows that. He doesn't have to look at you. They give him these almost Shakespearean asides, you know, on earth 200 years ago, I was a prince. And he's just, he's, he has been places, he is places that, we mere mortals could never imagine. Here is, you know, the terrible genetically engineered human that just went total, you know, balloon animals on us. And he's out for revenge. And he makes the stakes totally clear in about five minutes, capping it off with that, yes, terrifying SETI eel scene. He is a threat from the very moment, from the very moment he sets on screen. And you can't take your eyes off him. Montalban, you know, picks it up effortlessly. You know, years later, after after first taking the role in the 60s, he just, you know, fits right back into it. And he and Kirk are never face-to-face, if you think about that. Every one of their interactions is through a communicator or a view screen or anything like that. They, they shot their scenes four months apart. Um, and yet the contrast between the two of them is still really clear. Part of that is the strength of the script writing as well. But it, it all starts with that moment. And, um, yeah, Ricardo Montalban is just a treasure in that film. Yeah, Gabe, that, that's a point, that last point that you brought up is one that I sort of forget about, that you're right. The tremendous dynamic that Kirk and Khan have, all the memorable scenes together, and yet you're right. Distance. It's all socially distanced. Yeah, the only, th- boy, how 2020 of them, 38, 20, however, how many years ago? 38 years ago. But yeah, like it, it's, it's really incredible the chemistry and the tension that they're able to build through a communicator, through a view screen, and that's it. And I'm going to sort of piggyback off of that tension with, to me, the best character moment is Kirk's super memorable delivery of the titular character in Khan. I mean, Khan has, and it's, it's preceded by just this tremendously raw emotional delivery by Kirk. I mean, he, at, at this point, he's, you know, he, he just basically avoided his own death watching Captain Terrell kill himself rather than kill Kirk. Meanwhile, he's got his friend and his former shipmate, Chekhov, who's trying to be programmed to kill Kirk. That doesn't work out. He sees that gross thing crawl out of Chekhov's ear. So Kirk is, I mean, he's at, 11 of pissed off here and so he just goes off on con and like a poor marksman you keep missing the target and he's trying to bait him like you got to come down here i've got genesis you've got to come to me like let's do this man to man and con just laughs it off and he's like no i'm gonna do to you what you did to me and i'm gonna leave you in a lifeless planet buried alive and at this point i mean kirk is he's he's like literally lost his mind and that's how angry he is and you watch that and you think like my god like have i ever been that angry in my life and i'm a hundred percent sure the answer is no the extent to which he is peeved and at his wits end with this guy is just off the charts and it's why that scene and that line has lived on and on and on and on and of course it's been you know it's a meme and it's a spoof by other TV shows, but at its core, it's about it's about these two guys, and they just can't stand one another, and that's basically all it boils down to. And we've talked a lot about William Shatner 
not overacting. Uh, this is a moment where he does, but for Shatner, it actually kind of works. I can't believe we've gone this entire podcast without once referencing that moment until right now. That's, that's impressive for us. And um, I think that's so right, Dan. No, I mean, it is, sorry, I, thinking about it, yeah, no, it, the, the sheer, everything that boils up in that moment between those two guys, and yeah, it, Shatner's trademark shacting in that moment is completely called for. Well, and if it were appropriate to do so on this podcast, I would award myself the two points for bringing it up finally. But that's not how we do things here on Dorkfest, the podcast. So instead, I am going to award the two points for this two-point lightning round question to, drum roll, it's going to go to Gabe. Because Gabe made some really good points. First of all, in the best scene, talked about, Obviously, the conversation with scenes started with Spock saving the Enterprise and that selfless act, but then Gabe brought it back to the Kirk and Sarek scene in Star Trek III, which is a supremely underrated scene. Gabe then went to bat for Leonard Nimoy as the best acting performance, even though he basically is only in two of the three movies, but very astutely points out that his entrance in uh, Star Trek III is the culmination of that movie. We get that little Amok time throwback with Spock actually calling Kirk by his first name. And then some very salient points as it relates to Ricardo Montalban and the character of Khan, his entrance. So Gabe, I give two points for you and your valent crew. I got them. May I go now? <laughs> oh. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. it's good. So, okay, we've got, we've covered all this ground. We've talked characters, we've talked actors, we've talked scenes, we've talked musical moments. We've talked the good, the bad, and the ugly for Star Trek's two, three, and four. So now it all boils down to this, gents, and it's our three-point question, and it's a simple one. Which is your favorite of these three movies? Doesn't seem like at first glance it should be a terribly difficult question to answer, and yet we know it's never, ever that simple. So Gabe, we have to begin with you. Of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which is your favorite? Of these three, perhaps predictably, I'm going with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, Star Trek IV was the first one I ever saw, and it remains as accessible to this day uh, as it was when it first came out. Um, again, I think three is a great adventure flick, but two is classic Star Trek. It um, improves on not just the mistakes of the motion picture, but even the things it got right in terms of the crew chemistry and coming back. And it found the themes that were going to carry Star Trek through, you know, the rest of this six film incarnation. It set the stakes beautifully and it follows through and it, it's chock full of great performances. I think a lot of the effects still hold up. You know, there are not just some industrial light and magic fingerprints on here, but some of the DNA of what would become Pixar worked on this movie. There's just care in a lot of frames here. And it's so Star trek even to the point where this is, uh, there's a, a brief story I like too, where when producer Harv Bennett was uh, pitched to get on this project in the first place, he was asked by one studio executive if he could make it for less than a certain amount of money, something like $50 million dollars. Um, which is the huge budget of Star Trek, the motion picture back in 1979, how far we've come. Uh, but to that, Harvard Bennett replied, where I come from, I could make 
four or five movies from that, which turned out to be prophetic because he did. And this is the first of them. And um, I, I think it's, it remains as essential to Star Trek now as it did in 1982. It's great action, great characters, great drama. It's what Star Trek's supposed to be. Gabe, one interesting thing that I actually found out looking back over these films over the course of the last week is that the Genesis scene that I referenced earlier, the actual computer generated um, scene there is the first instance of CGI in any feature film. Um, so just another way that Star Trek is paving the way. That said, I, I'm not going to ride your coattails um, in selecting the Wrath of Khan. And that's because uh, you know, for me, this question is not asking which is the best of the three. It's asking which is my favorite, which is the one that I will watch time and time and time and time again. And for me, it is Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, The One with Whales. You know, with a lighthearted return to the sort of episodic nature that made Star Trek so famous. Also, thematically, it ages really, really well. There's still this thing called climate change that we're thinking about right now, um, or I hope most of us are thinking about right now. And, and this, you know, this film deals with that. I also read something interesting, um, an article by, um, I wanna make sure, uh, by Laura, Lauren Tommen. Um, it's actually on the StarTrek.com website, but she, she talked about another way to look or another reading of this film as, you know, how to, speak up for or, or how to be a good ally the sort of thesis of her article was that the the enterprise crew they didn't try to speak for the whales they knew that if they were going to try to do that it was going to be gibberish anyway so they actually had to it'd be a good ally they had to allow the whales to speak for themselves so i just think that this movie ages really really well and it's fun it's just so much fun to watch. There's so many fun scenes. The music is so fun. It's just, it's my favorite. Yeah, Jay, um, Star Trek IV uh, was definitely my favorite as a kid. Uh, was probably the first one I watched to get Gabe as a kid. But um, in in my older age, I'm I'm gravitating more towards the movies that really make me feel something at the end. Um, I, I think about um, my affinity for Last Jedi and it is sparked into a flame by Broom Boy at the end, turning his broomstick upside down and pretending it's a lightsaber. And I saw that and it transported me back to when I was a kid, pretending that any you know stick or broom handle that I could get my hand on and pretending it was a lightsaber. And that just made me feel this great sense of of joy and, and pride for spending so much time uh, enjoying that franchise. And that's the way I feel at the end of Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. I, I've already mentioned how um, it uh, brings a tear to me eye. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it makes me think about all the, the people that I love in my life and how, what a tremendous sacrifice it, it would be it would be to do something like what Spock does or to have done for me, uh, like so, something like what Spock did. And then, you know, having, having to live with it afterwards is, is, is this mix of terrible grief, but also gratitude that, that I think that that 
Amazing Grace funeral portion brings out uh, is, you know, it just, it really makes me feel something. And, you know, Gabe is absolutely right in that it's a tremendous movie start to finish. It's got themes, it's got great action, it's got humor, it's got performances. But in the end, that's what, that's the one that makes me feel the most. So that's the one that's my favorite right now. Get me right here, right here in the side of my rib cage where my Vulcan heart is. Get me right here, Josh. Well, you guys have certainly done a whale of a job. Boy, no pun intended. Sorry there, Jordy. Uh, a whale of a job. I was going to say defending Star Trek 2, but defending both Star Treks 2 and 4. I can't sit here and say that, you know, because no one's picked Star Trek 3, I can't sit here and say that Star Trek 3 is my favorite because I think that that would just be a bold-faced lie. Uh, I think it has a number of tremendous aspects to it. I think, like I said before, I, I used to not give it the credit that I absolutely believe that it does deserve. Um, I find myself kind of leaning with, with Jordan that, you know, yes, Star Trek II is, is probably the best Star Trek movie, and not just probably the best Star Trek movie among these three, it's probably the best Star Trek movie that's ever been made, but if I'm looking at favorite and if I'm looking that I only get one, you know, we, we take this sort of desert island approach and I only get one, like, I kind of like the kick up your heels and have a little bit of fun and travel back in time and save the universe and we end up, you know, all kind of happy and, and life goes on. So I, I think that's kind of where I would lean my vote. And as a result of that, I am going to award the three points to Jordan. Josh and Gabe made excellent points on behalf of Star Trek II. Josh talking about the nostalgia and the emotional impact that that movie has. Gabe with you talking about the tremendous script, the effects still holding up, and the notion that it's just a very Star Trekky kind of movie. Majority, you went to bat for Star Trek IV, and you made some great points there. That lighthearted return to the episodic nature—that's what Star. That is Star Trek's sweet spot. We said at the top of this podcast. We're getting back to our dorky sweet spot, talking about the things that we love the most. And Star Trek at its best is in that episodic nature. That's what this was. And you're right. That movie still holds up. 35 years later, that movie was addressing issues that we still are needing to address right now. And you watch it and it still holds up in that vein. And I know our listeners can't appreciate it the way the four of us can, but it's worth noting that Jordan's selection coincides with his wearing of the George and Gracie t-shirt from the Cetacean Institute in Sausalito. So Jordan, well done on your attire choice, well done on your defending of the voyage home, and well done on what is now your first official Dorkfest the Podcast victory. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I was going to apologize for my attire. I misplaced my uniform. Dan, I also want to give a shout out to you for not, you know, just immediately siding with Josh and Gabe, who we know are the intellectual puppets of this podcast. Um, and I would just like to lastly say that nothing unreal exists, not even this victory. Can I at least get a commendation for original thinking? <laughs> 
There'll be dorks here. All right. As everyone included every quote, every little side nugget that they wanted to make sure they got into this podcast. Uh, I, I was saving my chambers coil is overloading my comm system in case my uh, my mic went out at any point, but it looks like I didn't need that one. I was really hoping to squeeze in if you think yeah, I'm going to spend $60 for a toaster, however, you're out of your damn mind. <laughs> but as you already mentioned, we're trying to move away from the profanity. Correct, correct. Well, everybody remember where we parked and where this podcast is parked is, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you enjoy podcasts. Please also follow and connect with us on Instagram. We are there at dorkfest underscore podcast. We would love to hear from you there. Thank you to our dorks. Josh, Gabe, and our Victor Jordan. I am Dan. Thank you so much for joining us on this edition of DorkFest, the podcast, and we will see you out there. The bureaucratic mentality is the only constant in the universe. We'll get a freighter. With all respect, Doctor, I'm counting on Excelsior. Excelsior? Why in God's name would you want that bucket of bolts? Ship is a ship. Whatever you say, sir. Thy will be done. My friends, we've come home.